Now we come, friends, to a very important section. And as I say, these are incidents that are recorded here. You have no detailed account of the children of Israel for these wasted years in the wilderness. Now, we have here chapters 16 through 19. We have four incidents that are recorded, and they all concern the priesthood. You have, for instance, in chapter 16, the gainsaying of Korah. Chapter 17, Aaron's rod that budded. Chapter 18, the confirmation of the priesthood. And chapter 19, this offering of the red heifer. All of this pertains to the priesthood, and again, all of it has a message for us. Now, chapter 16 opens with the murmuring of the children of Israel. And it's the fifth murmuring we've already had. And before we get out of the chapter, you have the sixth murmuring. In fact, you can divide the wandering of the children of Israel according to their murmurings in the wilderness. Now, here is a murmuring among the priesthood. In fact, it's led by Korah, a very prominent Levite. Now, let me read chapter 16, the gainsaying of Korah. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, two hundred and fifty princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now, this is a rebellion against divinely constituted authority. First of all, Korah was a Levite of great authority and the men that were associated with him. In fact, 250 out of the tribes of Israel. Now, a rebellion must have men of character back of it. It must have brains and money, by the way, generally. This was no small affair. And they make an appeal to the mind of the mob. And this is the way that it's done. Now, you probably thought all these protest movements today were new. They're not new at all. Here is a protest movement against the establishment, against Moses, and it's led by these men. They're men of ability. And the appeal to the mob is, your rights are being infringed upon. Your liberties are being curtailed. You're not having it as good as you ought to be having it. And believe me, all these protesters ought to make a trip to some of the other countries. And by the way, these that are moving toward the communist center today ought to recognize you don't rebel. You're not permitted to have liberty at all. You'd never be permitted to rebel. Now, actually, this rebellion was not true to the facts, and the charge they made is absolutely unfounded. Moses was not taking too much upon him. Now, if you go back in his history for just a moment for the facts, 
When God called him, what did he do? He refused. He didn't want to do this. And even after God had trained him in the wilderness, he didn't want to do it. In fact, Aaron became his helper. And he's the meekest man on earth. And when Joshua wanted Moses to silence the prophets, why, Moses refused. And at that time, he expressed a wish that all of God's people might prophesy. My friend, Moses was a sinful man, but he wasn't guilty of taking too much upon himself. Now, what was really the root trouble here? Well, it was the jealousy of Korah. You see, this matter of jealousy is an awful thing, and it's a tragic thing when it gets into the church. All authority is God-given. No man taketh this honor upon himself. And God had given the places in the camp when they started out. Korah had his. Moses had his. And frankly, this rebellion must be dealt with. And extreme measures are going to be used. And they made a very subtle appeal to the people. They accused Moses of taking too much upon him and also Aaron. And it was a very subtle appeal because that's the thing that's used today for the mob, that your rights are being infringed upon, your liberties are being curtailed. And right now, we've been through a series, in fact, an epidemic of protest movements. There's a great deal of talk about we want more liberty. My friends, people have more liberty in this country than any place or time in the history of the world. What men and women are doing today in this nation could never have been done any time in the past in any country. been impossible, and it would have brought any nation down, would have destroyed it. And if it's permitted to continue in this country, of course, it will bring our nation down. Naturally, would do that. But this is the subtle part. People talk about wanting liberty today, wanting freedom today. And it's a false charge, of course. And it was a false charge here made against Moses. As we saw, Moses was a meek man, meekest man on the earth. He didn't even want the job as leader. He refused it when God offered it to him at first. And then when these people began to prophesy, why, Joshua wanted to have them stop because Moses was the spokesman. Why, Moses refused. He wouldn't stop them. Why, he said, I wish it were possible for all the people to prophesy. Now, this man Moses, friends, he was a sinful man, but he's not guilty of this. He's not taking too much upon himself. Now, you have the backbone of it, and as we said last time, the thing that was back of Korah's rebellion was the jealousy of Korah. And that is the thing that wrecks our churches. It's causing, I'm confident, the problems today in our churches. Paul enjoined us to walk in meekness and lowliness of mind, walk in humility. And the reason for that is to get rid of this awful thing, terrible thing, of jealousy. Well, you find jealousy in the choirs today. And the choirs called the War Department, as you know of the church. Maybe that's unfair to say that. A friend of mine, however, says that when the devil is cast out of heaven, he fell in the choir loft. Well, I sometimes think that's quite possible, but it's not only in the choir, but you find today that pastors and boards are in disagreement, our individual board members. 
And back of that is always jealousy. It's the root trouble of all of our division and all of our trouble today. And jealousy is an awful thing. It's a terrible thing. Now, we need to recognize that all authority is God-given, and no man taketh any honor on himself. And God had given the places in the camp when they started. You remember, Korah was given a certain office. He happened to be a member of the tribe of Kohath, and they had their duties, and Moses had his duty. You see, the picture today that Paul gives us is of the church as a body, like a human body. And the body has many members. The church has many members. And when God saves you, he puts you in the body by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you're to function in a certain way in the body of believers. Now, there are many, many gifts of the Spirit, therefore. This idea today that you've got about a half a dozen is a sad mistake. And there's not just one gift to begin with. Now, if you are a Christian, you've been given a gift, and you're to function in the body of believers. Now, there's one thing for sure. All the body is not tongue, and therefore not everybody would speak in tongues, even if that was a gift today. And Paul says that not all the body is an eye or an ear. If it's all eye, what about the hearing? You have to have a body that functions. And every individual has a gift, and there are many gifts. But Paul calls one helps. And I just think of the hundreds of ways in which you can help. Why, right here in Southern California, we have a group of volunteers that come out to our headquarters, our radio headquarters, and they give time. Some of them are retired people. Some of them are housewives. Some are widows that lost their husbands, and they probably get a little lonely. But they had office experience, and they can help us a great deal. fact of the matter is, they have the gifts of helps. Now, let's look at that for a moment. Now, they can't get here before the microphone and teach the Bible. And you want to know something? You ought to see I'm all thumbs when I try to help them out there. Somebody said to me, do you read every letter that comes? I read a great many of them, friends, which I couldn't answer all of them myself. You see, I have to have help. And I've got a lot of people that have got the gift of helps. And I have one man. He's an expert cabinet maker. Well, he made the bookshelves in the cabinet for my office out there in my study where I make the broadcast. Now, he can't make the broadcast, but I can't make the cabinets. You see, every man has a gift. And God wants you to function in that. And your business is not to try to get somebody else's office or a job. All this insane vanity today of Christians wanting to be made chairman of a board or to get on a board or to do something publicly. Well, my friend, most of the members of the body are not seen. We've got them all covered up today. And rightly so, I think, these members function, though. And without their functioning, why, the body couldn't function today. So this man, Korah, is motivated by jealousy, a spirit of jealousy. It's the thing that motivates a great many people today that are troublemakers in our churches. And unfortunately, these people push themselves into a place of leadership. I know many men and women in churches today that 
have pushed themselves to a place of leadership. And they're attempting to usurp a gift that they do not have at all. They have no particular ability to do the thing that they're doing. God never called them to do it. And that is hurting the church more than anything. Now, this rebellion had to be dealt with in a very definite and a very serious manner. And believe me, God's going to deal with it in a very definite way. And so we find that God moves in in a very definite way here. And I tell you, friends, the judgment of these men is going to be serious. Now, notice what God did. Verse 4, And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. He spoke unto Korah and unto all the company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and who will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do take you censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. Now, they said to Moses and Aaron, you take too much on you. Now, God says... You take too much on you. And so what we find here, that God appears as he does at the time of the rebellion, at the time of the murmuring. And this is the second time that the glory has appeared in connection with the rebellion and murmuring in the camp. In verse 19, And Korah gathered all the congregation together against them under the door of the tabernacle, of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourself from this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Now, God's going to judge them in a very definite way. You see, these men even refused to obey Moses. They set up their own little worship, and they intended to divide the people, and it was a terrible thing. Therefore, God must deal with it, and God must judge it. Now, in verse 31, notice, "...it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods." Now, it's quite interesting the way God judged them. They attempted to divide the people. And there is a law of God which operates, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's interesting, God judges the very same way in which the man sins. That's been true. It was true of old Jacob. It has been true of every other man. It was true of David. It was true of Paul the Apostle. God judges in the same way that you sin. Now, these men led a rebellion, and the earth opens up. It divides and swallows them. And we read in verse 35, "...and there came out a fire from the Lord, and consumed the 250 men that offered incense." Now, these leaders felt like that they ought to have a big stake in service. And I'm afraid today that there are many laymen 
who have a marvelous gift of serving God in probably some humble capacity, and they get the impression they should run the church. And I say it's tragic when that happens. I've seen it wreck several churches, and sometimes they feel like that they ought to be the one actually preaching. Many of them think they can. Well, I don't think every man has that gift on these lines, friends. You have a gift if you're a Christian, but that gift may be something you're not even thinking of. Did you know that Dorcas in the Scripture had a gift of sewing? She made clothes for the widows. When Simon Peter saw that, he raised her from the dead. You know why? Because that gift was that important that they needed her in the early church. And I think today we could do without a lot of the voices that are speaking today. I don't think we probably need more voices speaking. We probably need somebody that can sew a little bit better or somebody to do some humble task around the church today. May I say to you that these are gifts that are important in our day. Now, God says in verse 37, "...speak unto Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the census out of the burning, scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed." Now, we find here that the children of Israel are still complaining. And we find that in verse 41, "...that on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses." And against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Now that these men have been judged, why, they're blaming Moses and Aaron for it. And Moses and Aaron wasn't the one. God did it, you see. Actually, it's rebellion against God, and it's murmuring against God. Now, what happens? Notice verse 42. After the rebellion again, the glory appears. I'm reading now. came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And this is the thing that happened. Every time they rebelled, the glory of the Lord would appear. But now this time, God is judging the people. And the very man they're complaining against now, he's the one that stands between the people and God to avert the judgment of God from them. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly into the congregation, and make an atonement for them. For there's wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. And Aaron took, as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people." And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. While the very man they rebelled against is the very man that saved them. He stood between them. The very one who they crucified on a cross was the very one, friends, that saved many of them that were there. And I think even Saul of Tarsus was there that day. Now, this is a tremendous thing and a tremendous lesson, by the way. Now we have in chapter 17, Aaron's rod that budded. Now God is going to confirm the priesthood of Aaron, that he is the high priest. And he'll do it by resurrection. Notice chapter 17, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, 
Speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod, according to the house of their fathers. Of all their princes, according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods, write thou every man's name upon his rod. Thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod, whom I shall choose, shall blossom, and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against me. Now, they were murmuring against Aaron now, you see, that he's not the only one that can represent us before God. And it was rebellion against him. Now, God confirms his priesthood in a most remarkable manner. They took those twelve rods, and all of them were as dead as a dodo bird. They put those rods in before the Lord. Aaron's rod was put there among them, and his was dead. But what happened? Verse 8 came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded, and brought forth buds, and bloomed blossoms, and yielded almonds. Now, this is life out of death. Aaron's priesthood is confirmed by resurrection, life out of death. That's the reason in the springtime, the fact that the plants are all coming back and budding again, that doesn't illustrate the resurrection of Christ. In that egg, there's a germ of life. In those plants that have lain dormant all winter, there's life. May I say to you, resurrection is life out of death. And these rods were all dead. Aaron's rod was dead, and now it's alive. In fact, the matter is it's got on it buds and blossoms and fruit on it. This is the confirmation of his priesthood, life out of death. Now, that finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ rests upon the fact of his resurrection. We are told very frankly in Hebrews that if he were here on earth, he'd not be a priest. He became a priest after his resurrection. His resurrection made him a priest. And that no man becomes a priest, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron was God's called priesthood, and the evidence is resurrection. And the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He became our priest, and he's able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God through him. So that you and I today have a great high priest, and at this very moment he's at God's right hand. He's there for you and for me today. He's our great high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And one of the greatest privileges we have is to be able to go to him. And you and I can go to him, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched, with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore 
come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, that was the testimony to the priesthood of Aaron, and it was resurrection. Now, the Lord Jesus was not a priest when he was here upon this earth. The writer to the Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. But he became our great high priest by his resurrection from the dead. And friends, that's so important to see that you and I today have a great high priest yonder at the right hand of God, and he's able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God through him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. We have a living Christ today. And actually, we have to do with the Lord Jesus since his resurrection rather than before his resurrection. That is, his earthly life is not exactly what we rest upon. It's the resurrection life of Christ. He came down here. He took our place. He identified himself with us. Now he's ascended back into heaven, having been raised from the dead, and he sits at God's right hand. And that's just about as important as anything could be. Now, after this time of rebellion, and it was an upsetting period in the life of this nation, you can be sure there were repercussions throughout the camp. In fact, we saw that there was a murmuring of the people. They felt like it had been too harsh in executing the men who led this rebellion. After all, they were very attractive men, and they were leaders. There were those soft-hearted folk there that had no spiritual discernment, and they found fault. And they accused Moses of this. Well, Moses wasn't any more guilty of their death than Simon Peter was guilty of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Actually, I'm of the opinion Moses might have been a little surprised at what really took place. But now, the very man they accused, when the judgment came, that is, the plague upon them, why Moses stood between the living and the dead. And he became actually their intercessor at that time. Now, we find that it's necessary to establish the priesthood. And we have in chapter 18 the confirmation of the priesthood. Now, I'll spend very little time with this, although there are many wonderful lessons that are here. And God says in verse 1, And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. That is, they are responsible for what takes place there. You see, this rebellion was in the family, or the tribe, I should say, of Levi. And it was very serious. And thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. You're responsible. That is what God is saying. And friends, you and I are responsible for the fact of our Christian testimony. And we're responsible for our families. And in a sense, we're responsible for our church. A great many people like to pull their skirts around them and assume a holier-than-thou attitude, shine up their halo, and then look down at the church today and talk about the apostasy 
And, of course, it's in apostasy. But you see, the thing is true, that if there is sin in the church, then you and I bear a certain amount of responsibility. There's sin in our family and sin in our lives. We can't escape the responsibility. And that's the first thing God is putting upon Aaron. Aaron, after this, could just take a holier-than-thou attitude. I'm God's elect, and I'm the one now that God has chosen. But God won't let him do that, because there's one thing about God's man. He has to walk in humility. And Moses has already been identified as the meekest man on earth. And this man is walking before God in a very definite way. Now we find that it says among the children of Israel, and friends, I'm not going into the detail here, but God takes up in detail the part of the offering that belongs to the priesthood. God says to them, you will have no part in the land. God did not give them farms to keep or vineyards to tan or olive groves at all. But they were to have part of the offerings that were brought in. And he identifies that. The best part of an offering was given to them. And that which was known as the wave offering, that was never offered on the burnt altar. But it was given to the priests. Now, this is what God says in verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer unto the Lord have I given thee and thy sons and thy daughters with thee by a statute forever. It's a covenant of salt forever before the Lord unto thee and to thy seed with thee. Now, that was the way a covenant was sealed in that day, was by salt. Each party would take salt you know. And here God says, it's that kind of a covenant that I make with you that this belongs to the Levite. Now, may I put it in very plain terms today. You're to pay your preacher, and you're to pay those that give you spiritual food. Now, the man that's spending his time doing that, he can't go out today and farm, and he can't go out today and work in a field or in an office or in a factory. And I think it's one of the tragic things today. It's true on the mission field that many of God's finest workmen down there are having to take a secular job. And the ministry, the church suffers because of that. That's exactly what God is saying here. And now notice what he says to the family of Aaron and the Levites. Verse 20, And the Lord spoke unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And it's a wonderful thing to look to the Lord, friends. I recognize that it has its problems, especially those of us of little faith. Now, I've been a minister for about 30-some-odd years. I'm now, for the first time, without a church. I have a radio program, and it's been quite marvelous to be in this position. And I want to tell you how good God is. He's been mighty good to this poor preacher. And that's what David said in the 16th Psalm. Listen to him. 
The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. It's a wonderful thing to have God as your inheritance and to have him as your paymaster and look to him. And it's a glorious position to be in. And that was the position of the Levites. And it meant walking by faith. Now, the question often arises, should a preacher give to the church? And I find today a great many feel that they should not. I'd like to say a word in that connection, because what we're finding back here are patterns for us. What we are finding back here are not rules and regulations. This is the Mosaic law, but they certainly furnish great principles by which we're to live. And they are roadmaps for us to help us out in these questionable things. Now, should a preacher or a Christian worker give to the Lord? Well, let me read verse 26. Thus speak unto the Levites, and say unto them, When ye take of the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then ye shall offer up a heave offering of it for the Lord, even a tenth part of the tithe. God said to the Levites, You give a tenth of what you get also. May I say to you, I think the Christian worker, whoever he is, is also to give to the Lord's work. That's the reason I think that he ought to give to his church, or through his church, to his church's program. I've always followed the policy of giving to missions, and I've encouraged my staff. I've always had the offering passed on the pulpit platform when I was a pastor, that they might set an example, you see, to the congregation. Now, I think this is very important. And I've been thrilled, by the way, we made a policy of sending our books and our tapes to missionaries and don't charge them a thing. But here's the thing that's quite interesting. Did you know that half of them pay for it? We had a missionary that came in one of the leading faith mission boards. He was about to lose his faith on the field, and he came home and started listening to our program on furlough. Said he never missed a one. He came out and got all of our tapes. Now, we were going to give it to him, our man that has charge of the tape ministry. He was going to let him have it, because that's our policy. This man said, no, you don't give them to me. I know I'm a missionary, but I'm going to pay for them. May I say to you, he certainly had the right principle. Now, if he was able to do it, fine enough. But when they're not, and friends, many of them are not thing impressed me on the foreign field of the number of missionaries that are driving old second-hand beat-up cars. And when I was on the mission field several places, I've been afraid to drive with them in a car that I don't think is in good shape. And I never thought we'd make of the plane when I was going with one of them. The car looked like it was just running out of, not a gas, but old age had come upon it, like the one-horse shape. It was ready to fall down. I think that's a shame that the church today is not giving the proper instruments, the good instruments to our missionaries. They need tools, and they should have the tools, and God's work should have that. This is a very practical, important section, and I didn't intend to spend so much time with it. Now we come to the 19th chapter 
And we have here one of the most interesting offerings that you have, and it's called the offering of the red heifer. And this is unusual. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. Now, this is the first time you have a female offered. It's a female animals, unusual. And ye shall give her unto Eliezer the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp. One shall slay her before his face, and Eliezer the priest shall take of her blood with his finger, sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle, the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin, her flesh, her blood, her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until the even. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes, and so on. Now, what's the purpose of this? Verse 9, And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It's a purification for sin. Now, how was it used? Verse 17, And for an unclean person they shall take of the ashes of a burnt heifer of purification for sin, and running water shall he put therein in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop, dip it in the water, sprinkle it upon the tent, upon all the vessels, upon the person that were there, and upon him that touched the bone, or so on. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean. Now, this is quite an ordinance, quite unusual, isn't it? Sounds very strange. Well, let me say this. When the children of Israel were on the march, and a man sinned, well, they just couldn't stop and put up the tabernacle and go through the ritual of offering a trespass offering or a sin offering. What did they do? Man sinned on the way. Well, they take this ashes of this heifer, and the ashes are mixed with the water, and that's running water, if you please, and a hyssop is taken, and it's applied to the individual that's sinned. Now, that's a strange thing. Well, may I say to you, it has a meaning for us today. That was the way God dealt with sin for these people. Now, I see something else strange. The Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing he did when he got in the upper room, he got a basin of water and he washed the disciples' feet. Why did he do that? Well, because he said to Simon Peter, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. That is, you'll have no fellowship with me. And today, John says that what he did, he did in view of the fact that he'd come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. Well, he's gone back to the Father. And today, he's still girded with a towel of service and the basin of water is the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one that applies it. And hyssop speaks of faith. And when you and I sin today, well, Christ is not going to die all over again. 
we're told in First John that if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And that light is the Word of God. And we walk in the light. What do we see? Well, we see we're dirty and we need cleansing. And so the water must then be used. The Spirit of God then convicts us. And then what do we do? Well, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will just keep on cleansing us from all his sin. But if we're going to have fellowship with him, then we come to him, and the water of the Word and the blood must be applied to us if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this has a real meaning for us today. You see, he died down here to save us. He lives up yonder to keep us saved. And when he died for our sin, he not only died for our sins up to the time we came to him, but he died for our sins from the time we came to him at the cross until he gives us a crown someday. But don't tell me now you don't sin after you've been saved. And that's the thing that a great many Christians today are neglecting. And you know what that is? Being cleaned up for church. We all take a bath, don't we, for Sunday, Saturday night bath. And then today we're using all kinds of deodorants. You know, congregations smell better today than they used to smell because there's so many using perfume and deodorants and cologne and all kinds of things are being used today. But they actually smell worse. And you know what the problem is? How many come in there? They've been gossiping all week been looking at things they shouldn't look at. They've got dirty eyes. They've got dirty ears. They've heard things they shouldn't have heard. And they've got dirty hands because they've been doing things they shouldn't have done. And they've got dirty feet because they've been walking where they shouldn't have walked. And they think they can just come into church and everything's all right. It's not all right. Lord Jesus said, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. And that's the reason you thought this sermon was so dead last Sunday. You needed a bath. You see, spiritual bath. Why don't you go to him for cleansing? Somebody says, how often do you think you ought to do that? Well, I don't know about you. I try to get a shower every day, and I find out that two or three times every day I've got to go to him and tell him that McGee's been wrong and that he shouldn't have seen this or done this or said this. May I say to you, we want to keep sweet with him. And the only way you can is to confess your sin. This offering of the red heifer is a marvelous offering, by the way. It kept them sweet on the wilderness march. This was their deodorant for the wilderness march, that they might keep in fellowship with him. Because, you see, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, John said we lie. And, friends, we don't want to do that, because then we'd have to confess that to him. So the important thing is, is just to go to him and tell him, and you just well tell him, Friends, he already knows all about you anyway. And it makes fellowship so wonderful if we confess our sins. We come to this 20th chapter of the book of Numbers. It opens with the death of Miriam. It closes with the death of Aaron. So you can see that it's bounded by death, and that doesn't seem to be something to be thankful for. Now we come to this 20th chapter. We find that we have here the death of Miriam. We have the sin of Moses. We have the sin of Edom. 
and the death of Aram. But it's an important chapter because it marks the end of wandering for the children of Israel and the beginning of marching. We had back in chapter 14 to 20, this section here is actually the only section that deals with the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And that's not very much. We just had, as we said when we got into this area, that all we'd have would be incidents. There's nothing to tell. They are out of God's will. They only amount to something when they're in God's will. And we can talk about them being a chosen people all you want to, but they didn't amount to anything except when they were in God's will, and that's still true. And friends, that's true for you and me today. We don't amount to anything when we're out of the will of God. When you and I are not functioning in the body of believers, exercising the gift He's given us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's so many gifts, and not everybody has the same one. Actually, Dorcas could sew garments, and that was a gift. And today there are gifts just like that. When you and I are not doing the thing that God wants us to do, we are just about as unnecessary as an appendix is in a human body. Now, we have here the death of Miriam, and only one verse is given to it. No long funeral oration at all. Just notice it says, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, that word Kadesh tells us something, does it not? They were at Kadesh 38 years before. And here they are back here again. 38 years of wandering, going nowhere, and getting there fast, by the way. These years of wandering were not years of great blessing for the people, but great lessons to be learned, because many of us today are actually not marching as pilgrims through the world. We are wandering as pilgrims through this world down here. May I say again, we have just the simple statement of the death of Miriam. No long funeral oration, no panegyric of praise, no effort at all to eulogize her. She nursed Moses, and she was big sister. And in the wilderness, she joined in the rebellion against him, even with the brother Aaron. And all that Moses remembered was the best. Only love abides I think, friends, for many of us, when we get over there, that we're going to look back and many of these pin pricks that you and I get from others today, even Christians, I think we will forget all about them. Only love abides, and it's amazing at the time of death that you try to think of something pretty nice about somebody, and you try to forget that which is the ugly part. And so Miriam dies, and she's buried, and that's it. And the children of Israel continue to wander. Verse 2, and I'm reading. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chowed with Moses and spake, saying, Would God 
that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And they don't any more mean that than anything in the world. None of us want to really die. Death's unnatural for man, but they're complaining, you know, whining, murmuring again. I think it's the seventh murmuring, and it's the lack of water now. And listen to them, verse 4, "...and why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there?" Here they are complaining. Here we go some more, verse 5, "...and wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us in unto this evil place? It's no place of seed or of figs, are of vines, are of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And the child of God needs to recognize, I don't care where you are today or who you are today, friends, you're not there permanently. You're a pilgrim just passing through this world, and you won't be at any one place long. And so we ought not to spend so much time complaining. Here they are back at Kadesh, where they failed before, and they're already complaining, there's nothing here. Well, land of milk and honey is ahead of them, friends, and it isn't here. This is not where they're to enter the land anyway. And they're complaining, as you see, and there's not any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And again, I call your attention to it, that every time these people murmured or complained, the glory of the Lord appeared. God was displeased with their complaining. That ought to give us some idea today. If we're a whining, complaining saint, we're not pleasing to God. And I don't care who we are or where we are or what we're doing. Now, will you notice, "...and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying..." Now, notice this carefully. "...take the rod..." And this rod here was Aaron's, by the way. "...and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes." Now, why were they to just speak to the rock this time? Well, because back in the 17th chapter of Exodus, they were there, and the rock was smitten. And the rock is to be smitten only once. Now, we'll notice that. "...and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And believe me, not only is the children of Israel complaining, but Moses is complaining now, don't you think? I have great sympathy for him. He's been with them all the 40 years in the wilderness. And frankly, friends, he's getting pretty tired of them. All they did was murmur and complain, and I think he's getting tired. But he's forgetting himself here 
when he says, Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses is not going to fetch them water out of the rock at all because God will be the one that will provide the water. They need to learn a great lesson here, and that is that this is to be a type of Christ, and they're going to have to be very careful. So Moses got angry, and he did something that he shouldn't have done. And this is going to keep him from entering the promised land. Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. Now, somebody said he shouldn't have smitten it twice. He shouldn't have smitten it at all, friends. It had already been smitten. Christ suffered once for sin, never the second time. Christ is the rock that we have here, and that's the picture. And therefore, Moses should have protected and guarded the type by obeying God, you see. If he'd obeyed the Lord, the Lord told him very clearly, says, you just speak unto it. That's all you need to do, and the water will come forth. You don't need to smite the rock at all. But you know this man, he had to go ahead and do that. We are told that they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, you see, Christ was only smitten once, and that's how important it is that Moses should do it as God commands him to. And he smote the rock twice. He should have spoken to it, not smite it once even. It had already been smitten. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Now, that didn't keep the water from coming out. The important thing is... It wasn't a matter of smiting the rock or hitting it. It was to picture that which represents Christ. That is the important thing. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not. You see, Moses' lack of faith here, and he came down on that rock twice. How many Christians today trust Christ as their Savior, but they sure fill with fears and unbelief, not sure of their salvation, you see. My, what a reflection it is on him when we don't take him at his word and don't believe him, you see. And Moses and Aaron actually didn't believe, and God said to them, "'Because ye believe in me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel,' Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Now, Moses will get it, but he'll get it after death. After all, he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ in that land. But he has to get it by death, as the same crowd did at Kadesh Barnea, because he disbelieved God. Now, Canaan actually is the picture today of where you and I should live by faith. It's not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of where you and I should live today. We're in the world, which is a wilderness, but you and I ought to be enjoying the blessings of Canaan. And that comes, as we're going to see in the book of Joshua, by the death and resurrection of Christ and our reckoning upon that, believing God and yielding to Him in this matter. And Moses and Aaron didn't do that. And we're told this is the water of Meribah, 
because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom, Thus saith thy brother Israel, Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we've dwelt in Egypt. And Moses recites briefly their history, and he asks permission, a permit to cross their land. Verse 17, he says, Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We'll not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We'll not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we pass thy borders. Now, that was a request that was made in a very kind sort of way. And Edom was his brother, and he reminds him of that. And Edom sinned in not letting them pass through. We are told, verse 18, And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. And the children of Israel, they said, Well, they've got cattle and they're little ones. We want to come through, and we won't take anything or injure your land. And verse 21, Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. And the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came unto Mount Hor. Now they are making a circuitous route, which was actually probably not necessary had they been given permission. Well, the very interesting thing, this man Moses needed to recognize that he should have been following the cloud and he would not have to fight with Edom. He didn't need to worry. God was leading him and guiding him. And instead of asking for permission to go through, he should have just followed the cloud. So actually, we find that Moses is making a mistake right here. Instead of asking for permission, I think the pillow cloud would have led him in a way he'd never had to fight Edom at all. But you see, this is a case of running ahead of the Lord, and so many of us do that. Now we come to that which is the death of Aaron, and that brings us to the end of the chapter. And this is a sad note, and yet look at the precious lessons that are in this chapter for you and me. Verse 23, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the coast of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. You know, there are many people today that are saved, that even in this life they never enjoy the fruits of salvation, and they do not have the fruits of the Spirit in their own life. They do not know what it is to walk in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, yet I for one moment would never question their salvation. Aaron was typical of that. He knew 40 years of rugged experience in the wilderness, but he never knew what it was to sit down and enjoy the fruits of the promised land. He did not know what it was to drink the milk and eat the honey in the land of milk and honey. 
And how many of us are robbed of that? Now, notice this is a rather sad note, and yet it has a precious lesson for us. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, bring them up unto Mount Har, strip Aaron of his garments, put them upon Eleazar's son, and Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die there. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up unto Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them upon Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there in the top of the mount. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mount. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron thirty days, even all the house of Israel. Well, friends, may I say this is a very sad thing for Israel, but it has in it for us today something that ought to cause us to have a note of thanksgiving. And you know what that is? Our Lord is a priest, and Aaron certainly is the type, but he's not a priest after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who had no beginning or ending of days, an eternal priest. This is pretty sad. The children of Israel mourned thirty days, and I think there were many that were in that company who'd been to Aaron. They knew Aaron, and Aaron knew them, and they would bring their little sacrifice, and they'd say to Aaron, "'Oh, do you think God will forgive me? I've done this thing again.'" I didn't want to do it, but I did do it. And here's my sacrifice. And I think Aaron would comfort them and said, Our God is a gracious, merciful God. And he'd offer the sacrifice for them. And then they saw Eleazar come down clothed in the garments of Aaron. But Aaron's dead and gone. And that party said, Well, I don't know Eleazar. And he doesn't know me. It's a different priest. May I say to you today, we have a priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Had no beginning and ending of days. He'll not die. He died for us down here. He lives for us up there. And he'll always be there for you. Always depend on him. He knows you. And you can know him. And to know him is life everlasting. And to know him will be the occupation for eternity. It'll never be changed. Now, that's something to be thankful for today, that you have a Savior that you can go to anytime, and it'll be a glorious opportunity. Now, this is the sad chapter, but what a message it has in it. Well, may I say this, that when we get in the next chapter, we're going to see Israel gain their first victory and they sing their first song. They're finishing the wilderness march now, and they'll be getting ready to enter into the promised land. And that promised land is where God wants to bring us today. And Christ is the one that can bring us there, even right now. What a blessing He can be to you and cause your heart to rejoice.